it's very important throughout Lost Island that we uh, really teach through activities and experiential learning. And so making sure that people on the front line understand that they are part of the experience. They are one of the attractions. They're not just a, a wallflower that what they say truly does have an impact on a guest's experience. And then doing role play and uh, finding ways to put them in the guest's shoes in a way that makes them actually think about what they're doing has really helped us out. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Josh, how are you doing today? Matt, I am feeling like I am lost on an island. How are you? <laughs> well, I am fantastic and found on an island. Uh, um, and uh, along those lines, I have a question for you. <laughs> okay. When was the last time that you went to a theme park that you've never, ever been to before? Well, if you're asking me this, and if I'm answering it as if it's the day that this episode comes out, the answer is today. <laughs> that took some thinking to get there. It took some thinking to get there. Now that I'm thinking about it, ooh, when was the last time I went to a park that I haven't been to? I, I, until the trip that I am on on the day of this episode's release. <laughs> I actually can't remember. I don't know if I can come up with a good answer to that question. So I look forward to going to multiple parks that I have not yet been to, including the one that is the spotlight of today's episode. But but what about you? When was the last time you visited a park that you had not been to? Technically, the last time was just a few weeks ago when I went to Frontier City well, I guess technically the last, last time, because it was a day after that, a couple days after that was SeaWorld in San Antonio. But I also, along that same trip, got to go to Lost Island Theme Park in Waterloo, Iowa. And let me tell you, this was an outstanding experience. And what I loved most about it is that I didn't really know what to expect. You know that that feeling? It's It's kind of like Christmas Day or your birthday, when you just don't know what's in that package and when you open it up, what's going to happen. It's the same feeling of walking into a brand new theme park. You walk through the gates and you get to see it sprawled out in front of you. And there's just a world of wonderment and discovery uh, that's in front of you. And you do feel a little lost, right? Because you've never been there before. You don't know which way to go first. You don't know what rides to go to. You don't know what you're going to discover along the way. But my experience at Lost Island was something that I won't soon forget. And 
I am super excited because today we get to talk to Eric Birch, who's the GM of Lost Island Theme Park, and he walks us through the history of the park, how it came to be, the process, and it's just, it's a fascinating conversation. So Matt, would you say that you once were lost, but <laughs> now are found on an island? Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I no, you're absolutely right. This was such an amazing conversation with Eric. We really get to hear about almost the the chronological approach to uh, to Lost Island's development, its opening. You know, the water park has has been open for you know for many years now, so we actually get to hear about Eric's early days as a lifeguard, uh, really all the way up until today, and a lot in between from, you know, from operating the water park, the difference between a water park and a theme park, which we, you know, we know on the surface level seems very obvious, but he gets into the, the intricate details of kind of the learning curve between the two. Uh, and then the whole process of, of building and opening the park and the, the hurdles that they encountered, which included weather delays and cost overages. And, oh yeah, there was that pandemic. Uh, but despite all of that, the park opened in 2022, and as of the time of this recording is currently in its second season. And so we get to hear what it was like, I would say, pivoting from building the park to uh, to operating the park. And, you know, of course, there was a little bit of overlap, you know, in, in between of, you know, kind of both happening at the same time. Uh, but we also get to hear all about the, the uh, I would say, the theming, the Easter eggs, the activities that, uh, that people can do in the park. Uh, as well as the employee culture. And uh, what, what I love is, you know, his mindset. And he says that uh, the employees are part of the attraction. You know, he tells them, you're not just a wallflower. You are there, you are part of the experience. And he gives us a glimpse into the recruiting and training uh, that they take at Lost Island that uh, really turns into this amazing guest experience. And what I loved when you talked about those Easter eggs and, and kind of discovering things around the park, I got to do that, right? And it's rare. And part of the reason I asked when was the last time you went to someplace brand new, it's rare for people who go to so many different places to find something that's so new. Okay, it's a roller coaster. Okay, it's a dark ride. Um, but so many elements of that experience were brand new. And a lot of it has to do with their original IP that they came up with in order to tell the story that they wanted to tell and, you know, present the characters and um, really tie in the whole experience of a true theme park um, to create an island of or a series of islands where you can discover things. You can you can put yourself through a challenge that maybe you wouldn't be able to do uh, in in another another realm of your life. Um, and so that part of the the experience I found really really cool and and fun to discover. <clears throat> Excuse me, but I also feel like from a from a guest perspective, it's something that helps kind of break up the experience a little bit. You know, he talked about the fact that at a water park, people they dwell right they they come and they hang out and they sit in a in a beach chair they've got a cabana and they're there to yes ride the water slides and that kind of thing but they're there to hang out where a theme park audience is more active typically you know they've got they're going to attraction to attraction and the way i i i really appreciate that he says that they kind of slow down that process is through these activities through these easter eggs and things that you can discover along the way and it's it's not just a path if you're paying attention there's something that you can get out of that as much as it is a is a way to get to your next adventure 
Yeah. And, and, you know, we break down that that's, that's part of the business model, right? That's the difference between a theme park and an amusement park. And that's how they, they use it to increase the dwell time, which of course leads to more spending, but also leads to more memories as well. And he, you know, gives an example of, of animal kingdom and the amount of Easter eggs around that park that when you interact with those and whether it's animal kingdom or at lost Island, that those are creating the, the memories that are going to last with you long after your visit. Absolutely. So is it time for us to discover more from Eric and uh, get to this interview? Let's get lost. Hey, Eric, welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. How are you doing today? Doing great, Matt. Just surviving the heat. <laughs> yeah, I hear you there. How hot is it today in Iowa? Well, we're going to be somewhere between 97 and 100, which is pretty unseasonably warm for us. So we'll see how today goes. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, stay hydrated, uh, first of all. Um, but Eric, can you give us a quick background about your career in this industry and a little bit about what you do at Lost Island? Sure. Uh, so our family built Lost Island Water Park back in 1999. And I started as a lifeguard in that role for the first couple of years and really learned the industry from the ground up. So in addition to lifeguarding duties on my breaks, I was also trying to make sure the pool chemistry was correct. And we definitely had challenges learning how to do that properly the first couple of years. Um, after two years of being a lifeguard, I moved on to a supervisor role and kind of took over the department since I was sort of leading it anyway. And the person that we had brought on took another position. So I stepped up to fill that role and uh, led our aquatics department for a number of years uh, <clears throat> until about 2012. And then the department was running pretty smoothly. We had a really good person to take over my role and our front of house uh, position was left vacant. And so I moved into that role to streamline our scheduling for cashiers and front of house staff and uh, oversaw the implementation of our first cabanas that went into the park. And I was in that role for three years before my parents kind of stepped away from the day-to-day -day operations and left it in my hands so they could focus on other other things. And uh, so I was general manager over there for four years. Uh, I oversaw the expansion of our cabana program. We uh, did a number of quality of life improvements in terms of theming and uh, keeping up the, the slides and attractions, making sure that they didn't fall into disrepair, uh, bringing in additional seating areas and shade structures. Uh, we added another restaurant facility and so we could pull our pizza out of one of the restaurants and improve the uh, wait time on foods. And um, then after we started the theme park project, um, the original intent was that I would stay on at the water park, but we went through a couple general manager candidates over the course of 18 months while the project was being built. And 
for one reason or another, they just kept not working out. They self-selected sort of out of the, the role. And so in January of 22, we again made a transition because the water park was running smoothly to kind of move everybody up over there. Uh, and I assumed the GM role over here and found out very quickly that a theme park is much different than a water park from an operator standpoint and uh, had a pretty high learning curve for the second time in my life coming from a background in cabinet manufacturing and lawn care uh, into the water park industry and then water park to theme park. So uh, yeah, in 22, when this park was built, I came over here and we have been doing our best since we opened in June of 22. Eric, can you talk a little bit more about that learning curve going from, from you said, from the water park to the theme park, uh, a substantial learning curve? We'd love to learn a little bit. Of course. More. Well, uh, when we were talking about building the theme park, many people in the industry at IAPA would say, oh, wow, that's really strange. Normally, it's a dry park that adds a water park, and I can't believe you're going the other way. And it the, the amusement side is so much easier. And we thought, okay, great, that's good to hear. We've already done the hard work, so this is going to be a lot easier. But from my perspective, the water park industry is very simple from a technical standpoint. You have a pump run by a motor that pushes water to the top of a tower, and it falls through gravity <laughs> into a pool that there are three components and they all are the same no matter which ride you have except for one but that's that was our our one uh roller coaster slide hybrid that gave me an indication of what the the theme park might be like but the majority of our rides are very simple the i think what the issue was that people were referring to is in a water park the likelihood for an accident is much further out of your control because it's so much more interactive and guests can injure themselves even if the ride is running exactly the way it should every time and so uh using like an engineer's point of view yes uh, an amusement park is much safer because as long as the ride is maintained and everything runs as it should somebody isn't going to just fly out of the seat like they could on a water slide if they we're trying to do something crazy. Uh, however, in, in an amusement park setting, all of the rides in our park are completely different. So instead of just learning motor to pump to top of slide, it's, okay, you have this operator panel that has six buttons that you have to press in this sequence in order to start the ride. And these buttons are used if something goes wrong. But then this operator panel only has four buttons and they get pushed in a different order. And if something goes wrong, then you have to call maintenance because they have to use their key in order to fix what you need to have happen. And, and every ride has a totally separate list of spare parts that they need. The daily, weekly, monthly, annual maintenance is so, so much more extensive that learning even a cursory understanding of that in order to be dangerous, it has been 
a lot of work in addition to overseeing the food and beverage and front of house and the thematic storytelling elements that we have in this park that that are absent from the water park so it's just been it has been a lot and it was things that we didn't think about just simple things like at the water park we have a huge uh inventory of tubes and chairs because people come and hang out and they just sit on the deck all day the theme park has none of that because theme park visitors are very goal oriented they're not coming to just hang out in a lounge chair they are coming to ride that ride or eat that food or see those characters and move on to the next thing and it's they're constantly on their feet and they may sit on a bench for a little bit but then they're up and moving again and so trying to learn the habits of visitors has also been a new challenge because obviously we want them to stay as long as we want to keep the dwell time as high as possible, but it's a different environment. It's not just about making things uh, pleasing to the eye, although that's very important. You have to have reasons to keep them engaged so that they do stick around and hopefully spend some money while they're here. So I'd love to dive into those thematic elements um, a little bit more, but if, if we could back up even before that, um, I think you've done something that a lot of people in the industry dream of, and that is to create a whole theme park and see it come to fruition. So can you talk about that process of, you know, going from dirt to seeing it uh, rise up and, you know, being involved in all that and all that uh, creation and storytelling? Sure. So we started the process about 12 years ago where it was kind of just, uh, putting drawings on paper and saying, oh, wouldn't this be neat? But it wasn't really a, a for sure, yes, this is moving forward until about 2016. And we had been through that process before with the water park. This one was about three times the size in terms of scope. Uh, and the process going through construction was very challenging because with the water park, since it was so small, we were able to just general it ourselves because there were only maybe four contractors that were working on it. You had the slide installers, the uh, earthwork, flatwork people, and then electricians and some plumbers, and then the theming contractors. But that it was a pretty small group that were able to make that happen um, back in 2000. So when we started this project, at one point, we had over 400 different contractors working at the same time, 400 workers at the same time, uh, trying to put this together because it's, we were building a city. I mean, the, the utilities that are coming in are 480 volts. We had four, we have four of those transformers around the park that feed the power to the place, um, the amount of dirt work we had to do because this was a cornfield and we were digging out a lake, a 39-acre lake with uh, two levels because there's a, a waterfall feature inside the park that flows into that lake. Um, and then, again, the technical requirements for all of the different rides. We had one company that was doing all the the ride installations, but there were so many of them getting put in that we had to have two separate electricians 
there were two different, three different concrete companies doing flat work and foundations for the, the coasters and all of the buildings. Uh, there were, we had four different building contractors working on the uh, stick built concrete block and um, tin buildings. And so it was just, it was herding cats to the nth degree because we we did have a project manager, but we were still very much involved in all the decisions because with COVID happening, there were a number of um, budgetary concerns that we had. And so we were constantly trying to find ways to cut costs and make this somewhat affordable. Um, and so it it was just a beehive of activity for 18 months. Um, so it was a pretty stressful process, to be honest. I mean, we were, we were plagued with COVID, uh, cost overages and delays on materials. And because it's in Iowa, we had the first, right after we broke ground, we were able to do two weeks of earthwork and then it rained for 10 days straight. And so they had to pull off the site until November work two more days and then we got our first frost so they quit for the winter and didn't come back until march uh so had a major delay there and then the springtime in iowa is now just torrential winds like 30 to 40 mile an hour sustained winds for months at a time so it was just a dust storm out here for two or three months at a time uh, for the two two springs that we were under construction. Um, and then because of various delays, for a number of reasons, we were scrambling to try to open by June 18th last year, which was much later than we were planning on opening in the first place. And so we were literally pushing contractors out the door so that we could open the gate on June 19th, June 18th. And our, you know, our ride operators had barely had time to become familiar with some of the rides when we were letting people in the park, those rides didn't open because obviously we needed to train the staff uh, to do them, but it, it was a mad dash all the way to the end, even though we thought we had started in plenty of time to get it all done in, in, in the, the timeline that we had originally planned. Eric, I really appreciate you sharing all of that because most people, when they, when they see a theme park, they see a theme park, it's here, it's built, it's open. Everything is, is running, you know, as it should, but the story that you just shared, it, it is not uncommon for most theme parks as they get open. There's so many things that are, that are beyond, uh, you know, beyond your control, the weather that, you know, just all of, you know, all those, the cost overages, everything. Uh, but despite all those hurdles, you made it, you opened in 2022. And uh, one of the cool things about opening a new theme park is that your, your job completely changes, right? I've, I've had the opportunity to be a part of, you know, a few openings and there's everything leading up to opening. And then there's everything, after opening, can you talk about kind of maybe what that pivot point was like of, we're not building a theme park, we're operating a theme park now? Well, uh, because we were kind of 
shooing the contractors out, we definitely were still balancing both at the same time. So yes, there was the new responsibilities of, okay, now we're, we're scheduling and, and in this place, but also we are still <laughs> trying to put up the last sections of fence and, uh, z uh, zero out all of the, the contractor billing and so forth. The, the pivot is, was definitely one of relief though, because construction is so, so hectic and, uh, anxiety inducing for so many reasons just you know the if you if everybody is not paying attention and doing things the way that they're supposed to in sequence it causes this huge domino effect where okay it may only cause the electricians a day of delay but then that means that the framers can't put up the drywall and then the painters can't paint the walls and then the rest of the building can't get completed. And so one day turns into a six month delay. So getting the majority of that completed was a huge relief and operating at least at the level that we were last year was, it was a piece of cake because the water park is already uh, pretty consistently above 1500 guests, which in the industry is a drop in the bucket for some parks but for us that that was a uh an admirable number to see on a regular basis and without doing any marketing to let people know our exact opening date the theme park was seeing like a hundred people or less so as far as making sure the park was running that was fairly easy other than learning all of the kinks of the of how the rides worked. So we had a lot of issues with rides going down because an operator would push a button one second too early and it would fault out the ride and then maintenance would have to come and flip through the manual to find out what that fault meant. Uh, so there really wasn't uh, a whole lot of stress from, welcoming guests into the park it was it was more just we have to figure out all of these things that we've never dealt with before the people aspect was not hard at all i mean everyone was very gracious coming through the gate understanding that it was a new business and we were working out the kinks and the staff was just excited to be involved and so many of the issues that parks that have been around for a long time face with guest complaints and staffing issues were were non-existent so those those were nice things to have in the positive category because of the rides and and just making sure that the park was running the way it was supposed to definitely took up the majority of our of our bandwidth that's so interesting to hear just kind of that that process and the timeline through through what you went through especially the pivot and the and the developing of the the property. I do want to go back to those thematic elements because as you know I got to visit a, a few weeks ago and absolutely loved my experience there. The park is beautiful. It was immaculately clean when we were there. The team members were amazing. The food was the best food we had on our entire trip. Um but I also want I want to hear from your perspective what is it like when someone walks into Lost Island and they've got these choices of things to do? What is the story that you're telling? And what are, what elements are you using to tell that story? 
So uh, going back to dwell time, we felt when we started this project that in order to increase the amount of time people would spend in a dry park, we really needed to have some kind of a backstory. And so the whole park was designed around a mythology and lore that normally exists first before a park is built. So whether it's Harry Potter or a Disney park or Angry Birds or uh, any of the IPs that exist out there, it's something that people have a connection to already. And that's why the park is built and become successful. Um, we wanted to reverse engineer the theme park experience in a way because um, it felt like going down an IP route just wasn't the right fit for us because again, construction delays mean that just because something is popular today, by the time it actually gets to market, that IP may no longer be popular. And so for us, we felt like we, we did want to do the IP route, but how could we do that in a way that, um, that would work for us? And so we started coming up with this story, this backstory, just sort of as background info for us so that as the park was being designed, it had the cohesive feel of one of those other IP parks because all of the design decisions were informed by this metadata that we had made up on the back end. So it isn't glommed together like sometimes parks will do when they have this new ride comes out and it has its own theme that really has nothing to do with the rest of the park. And so we wanted it to have a cohesive theme. And so we, we went kind of an islands of adventure route by developing these five separate areas within the park to appeal to a, a variety of different tastes. So uh, using just the elements as a base, we built out this, this world uh, that people can explore and discover things if they want to, but it's not necessary to enjoy your visit. There's plenty of rides and interesting things to participate in that don't require a person get really deep into the names of the characters or the lands or anything. Uh, but we tried to fit in as many detailed parts that we had noticed ourselves in other parks that we enjoyed, like Animal Kingdom is a a big source of inspiration for us. The If you ever have been to Animal Kingdom and you look at the walkways as you're walking around, each of those uh, continents have different paths. And it's all concrete, but they have treated them in a way that in Asia, it looks like you're walking through muddy gravel and there are bike paths in the concrete that, you know, give you the sense that this is just a dirt road. And then in the entry area, it looks like cracked granite and that it's just stamped concrete. But those sorts of detailed touches are, are elements that we really wanted to include because even though many people may not consciously notice them 
they subconsciously will take that in and just get a feeling of being in another place. So those details were really important to us to add. Uh, and then going back to a way of drawing people back, we, we have a number of Easter eggs hidden throughout the park. And if you do want to, uh, become a super fan, I guess you can download our companion app that tells the backstory and is kind of the vehicle that we created to let people in on what the story of the park is. And that can give you a little more direction on how to translate the language that we have. And there are certain runes that you can decode and badges to collect for riding rides and uh, you get to meet the cast of characters that we've created and learn a little bit about each of them. So there are more reasons to come back and visit than just the collection of rides. So Matt was sharing with me uh, several of those Easter eggs and, and refer to them as activities because they're not rides or not attracted attractions, but they're things that you can do within the park that, you know, you talk about increasing dwell time and you talk about theming and uh, this really is, is the difference between a theme park or an amusement park. You know, it, it's very much of, are, are you going to the park to check off all the boxes because you've done X amount of things or really extending beyond that? Can you talk about it? Can we maybe go a little bit deeper into this, into why that's critical for the business as far as from enhancing the guest experience to increase dwell time to then uh, increasing spending and, and even tying in with repeat visitation that theming is not just a nice to have thing. It's, it's very much part of your business model. Absolutely. So, I mean, to be uh, painfully honest, Josh, the reason that we chose to go that route is because we don't have a Six Flags or Cedar Fair budget. And so the idea of going from zero to 100 for us did not mean, well, we're going to put in the tallest, longest, fastest roller coasters to try to compete with the other amusement parks in our area. Um, we felt that our background with the water park and what we enjoy when we would travel is visiting theme parks. We, we've never been part of the coaster enthusiast culture. That was something that we learned about when we bought the first coaster, uh, our, the, well, second one, the Intamin launch coaster that we purchased when all of these coaster enthusiasts started contacting us and we thought, Whoa, 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 how do you even know that, the, that we had made this purchase? So, our background is in themed entertainment and it's it's an area that we feel is underserved in this part of the country. Orlando, Texas, California, even the Northeast has several opportunities for people to enjoy a, a really world-class entertainment opportunities. And the Midwest is, we are, we're more interested in being able to tick boxes. And so the amusement park is really what dominates this area of the country for the most part. So we felt like because there are three fairly good sized parks in our, uh, in our region, the way that we could differentiate ourselves from them is by leaning really heavily into the themed aspect and the reason that we felt that that would be popular is because 
we have had success with the water park and the water park is by no means the largest water park in the region. We have Wisconsin Dells three hours to the north that has easily four times as many rides as we do, but we often have people coming from much closer to the Wisconsin Dells than us saying, we, we love it here. We prefer the environment. And that's why the water park has been on a USA Today poll as one of the top 10 water parks in the nation for a number of years, because there are enough people that do see value in, in those themed elements to, to continue to come back. And our attendance has continued to grow since we opened that park 20 years ago, despite the fact that we stopped adding rides in 2010. We, like I said, we have continued to update theming and make sure the rides aren't falling into disrepair. But the last attraction we added was that water coaster ride in 2010. So the theme park, we felt that it was a niche that was underserved in our market and we were going to cross our fingers and hope that people connected with the this completely new IP that we were just completing from scratch. Eric, I'm wondering if we can, um, or maybe if you'll allow me to nerd out a little bit on some of those activities and discoveries, because, um, and I think I sent you an email after the after my visit that I really enjoyed discovering those things as we ran, went around and and learned that story and unfortunately I didn't have the app when when I experienced the park but you know the the fountain where you put your hands and it changes what the fountain does and the and the um the thing where the the um there's the the bike seat right and you can pedal and the propeller turns and things like that how did or maybe the question is what was the thought process in what those turned out to be because it seems like you know, you 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 buy a roller coaster and and that's the roller coaster, but it almost seems like for these, like the sky's the limit. Maybe it's your imagination that you know determines where you go with some of those activities. So I'm curious if we can maybe peel back the onion, as Josh and I like to say, about that process in coming up with some of those those discoverable activities that weren't the the big marquee attractions. So again, uh, it was partially fueled by cost saving because we wanted to include as many attractions as we could, but also felt that um, including activities that aren't rides is part of the theme park experience. If you, again, going back to Animal Kingdom, really where the the whole impetus for the central icons, which are the five uh, activities you're referring to, came from just a simple set of drums that are off to one side of the path in Animal Kingdom that kids were just pounding on like crazy. And my dad and I were looking at that thinking, you know, this requires no staff. There's no power requirements. And th there are as many kids pounding on those drums as there are standing in line for any of these multi-million dollar rides. So why don't we put one of those in each of the areas as, as a central focal point that kind of sums up what the, our realm is about and also is just an opportunity for people to play as a family. And that, 
is another thing that's really important for us as a as a company within Lost Island is these parks were never made to be huge money makers. They were amenities that we as a family were giving back to the community. So the water park is is successful now, but we will never regain the investment that was put into and has continued to be put into that park. It's self-sustaining and that's all that is important to us. We're hoping to get to that same point with the theme park where we are paying our bills and maybe have a little leftover that we could put towards a ride in the future. But the, the purpose of these ride or of these two parks is really just about, as I said, bringing a world-class entertainment opportunity to our neighbors in Northeast Iowa and the surrounding states to offer them the chance to experience something at a fraction of the cost and without having to travel across the country to get there. So I do have a question about that and, and the the investment recouping the cost, but uh, but first I want to comment on, you talk about the the drums in, in Animal Kingdom and the way that that is able to enhance the experience. And, uh, and I'm just smiling a little bit because I'm thinking about a, a trip I took close to 20 years ago with my family to Orlando and we were at Animal Kingdom and my dad, who's a very talented musician, walked up to those drums, started playing it and generated an audience and even like some of the entertainment cast members came up and and started playing with him. And so that right there, actually, you know, yeah, we rode Everest that day. We rode Dinosaur that day. But when I think about, what, you know, what my favorite memory from that day was, it wasn't just the rides. It wasn't just the shows. It was, you know, it, it was that type of experience, which happened very organically. It was it was just there to be had. So uh, so I wanted to, to add that. Um, that comment in and, and the importance of those activities beyond, you know, beyond the rides and the theme park experience. The question that I have is, and I'm wondering, you know, we're, we're peeling back the onion a little bit. I, I, I'd love it if maybe we could take a little look under the hood, if that's possible, in terms of uh, theme park math. When we, you know, all three of us are on Twitter here and people, anybody can say what they want to on, on Twitter. And there's a lot of armchair experts out there that, you know, are commenting on, you know, the attendance at Lost Island and, you know, and, and all of that. And I know you're, you're very transparent on Twitter and you're commenting back with people and, uh, and I would say a very entertaining account to follow, I would say from that standpoint, but, you know, some people will say, you know, you need to have, you know, X amount of, of cash flow. Obviously there's, there's the CapEx to open the park and then there's the operating expense and, and the runway. And as far as just curious, as far as, if somebody's opening a new theme park, what do they need to think about in terms of their timeline and operating expenses? And knowing that any business in any industry, or very rarely will a business be profitable in its first year, first couple of years, first few years, and really being proactive and planning for that. Well, Josh, there's a lot of variables to go into that answer. I mean, the main things that I would suggest people really take a look at are the the location that they're planning to build in and what the population is within a uh, a radius that they're planning to draw from and then finding out what median income is so that you know approximately how much revenue you you may be able to pull in uh as far as a runway um, like you said, I think 
five years is not unrealistic to plan for in terms of when profitability will occur. And uh, again, we Lost Island is a very unique case because the these parks were both self-funded from our cabinet operation. So we carry no debt and we have no investors that we're beholden to to make sure that we recover their investment. Uh, so those those two things make it very, our situation very uncommon. I think most people that would be building a park are gonna be searching for financing and they're gonna have to do a lot better than we are doing. So having a significant cash reserve to weather those first five or more years is is definitely something they need to consider. Thank you for sharing that, Eric. I know that that's something like like Josh said, that everybody is kind of the, the armchair quarterback on, on social media in general. But until you've actually done it and you're looking at the balance sheet, it's hard to really know what that math really looks like. So I uh, appreciate you kind of sharing that a little bit with us. Um, I wanted to switch gears just for a minute because, uh, again, nerding out on my experience there, I found the employees to be in- extremely engaging. Um, there was a gentleman at the dark ride who literally invited us in. And I, I told Josh yesterday, I said, he enhanced our experience. Like, I think we we enjoyed the ride more because of his enthusiasm. And then the, uh, the crew over at the, um, and I Pardon me, I don't remember the name of the the place that I I had lunch, but the where we had the the um uh, the noodle bowl, um and the the crew over there, the the person who took our order and the the chefs who made it, so enthusiastic, so proud of what they were doing, and again the food was amazing. I'm curious. A lot of people are having trouble recruiting and retaining staff. So, what are some of your thoughts or philosophies around how you approach? leading those teams and, you know, creating a staff that's been so, so engaging and so enthusiastic. Well, uh, Matt, that, that's really what I wish I was doing all the time is training staff. Um, This role kind of gets me removed from that, but I at least get to point my finger and tell the leaders how to do it. Um, Very early in my career, I realized that if you ever want someone to learn something, it better be fun or at least engaging. And the idea of showing someone a video or giving them a worksheet or having them read out of a handbook is really a poor way to communicate a message. So it's uh, it's very important throughout Lost Island that we uh, really teach through activities and experiential learning. And so making sure that people on the front line understand that they are part of the experience. They are one of the attractions. They're not just a a wallflower that what they say truly does have an impact on a guest's experience. And then doing role play and uh, finding ways to put them in the guest shoes in a way that makes them actually think about what they're doing has really helped us out. Um, From the beginning of the hiring process forward, we make it very clear that 
working at a theme park is supposed to be fun, not just for the guests, but for the staff as well. Um, and I was fortunate enough to work with Heather Barnes a number of years ago on developing our group interview process because that was always the big disconnect for me. Once we hired people, we we were able to keep them because they got the orientation. We showed them what a fun time it was going to be to work here. And then it was smooth sailing after that. But really the the first touch point of interviewing them was one of the our, our failure points for me because you, when you bring somebody in to a one-on-one -on -one interview and you ask them the same 15 questions over a 30-minute period, by the time you get to the 60th person, you almost know what they're going to say. They're nervous. You're bored. And it's really just a matter of what is your supposed availability and are you conscious? I mean, can you string a sentence together? Yes. Okay. You're hired. And so that initial uh, encounter is really a disconnect where that is not a fun experience. And we saw quite a few people that would just ghost out on us. And while that still happens, the group interview format at least allows us to not be wasting our own time. If someone doesn't show up, we still have 18 other people that we're able to interview. And for frontline roles, that is a, is such a better way to introduce them to our industry because they come in, it's immediately fun. There's very little, uh, very few questions about, tell me about a time where you took on a leadership role or tell me how you deal with conflict resolution because many of these people this is their first job ever and having them critically think about a time that uh, that has to do with work experience they've never had before is incredibly nerve-wracking so the group interview format breaks that down that barrier down so they're able to have fun they get to meet some of the people that they may be potentially working with and they see their leadership mess up sometimes while leading activities, crack a smile, make fun of each other, and you see that we're real people too. So from the beginning, the group interview sets the tone. Then we go to orientation where we're able to play more activities with purpose that explain, again, how they're uh, an attraction, just like all the rides and that what they do matters. We give them some tools, empowering them to solve problems on their own so that they don't have to consistently say, well, I have to call my manager to take care of that. You know, if somebody orders an ice cream cone and turns around and drops it on the ground, the last thing we want somebody at, in the kiosk to say is, well, let me get my manager to find out if I can give you a new ice cream cone. That makes no sense because... The manager is going to say yes, but in the meantime, you have now made that kid and parent stand there for an indeterminate amount of time while the manager makes their way over there to give the approval that was going to happen anyway. So why not just improve the guest experience and tell your staff that if this situation or that situation happens, the top five things that you know happen at the park. 
this is what you can do to solve it. And now you get to be the hero. You're the person that that family is going to write about online. And so that gives them a little bit more ownership of the park too, because the first time that that happens, you better believe that they tell all of their friends about how they got to solve the problem. So I, I know that that is might be an unpopular opinion for some people about, well, then you're going to have people giving away ice cream cones to all their friends. Yes, that may happen. But isn't that cost of the 10 cents for each ice cream cone worth a better guest experience or two or three versus having people walk away thinking god it's just an ice cream cone or or whatever the case is oh i sat around for 20 minutes just to get a new one because the manager was stuck doing something else so it frees up the manager's time it makes the staff feel better about themselves and want to to do these sorts of things they seek them out they're trying to engage with the guests just like the ride operator did with you matt and uh it makes everybody's experience better so that there's less uh, less of the, oh God, I have to go into work again. There, there are far more people on our staff that are excited to come to work and happy to be here, even though it's going to be 100 degrees today. Yeah. Well, I will tell you that employee empowerment is definitely not an unpopular opinion within this Zoom conversation right now. So thank you for, for sharing that, but it definitely is a message that a lot of people need to hear. Uh, Eric, we're starting to get close to the end here and uh, start to wind down, but this has just been a, a phenomenal conversation. Uh, as we get close to the finish line here, if people want to learn more about Lost Island, if they want to get a hold of you directly, if they want to follow you on Twitter, where would you send them? <laughs> well, uh, you can certainly go to our website. It's www.thelostisland.com for information about both of the parks. Uh, if you would like to download the companion app for the theme park, you can get that on the Google Play Store or the Apple Store. It's called the Lost Island Adventure Guide. And if you want to follow the crazy things that I say on Twitter, I am at Lost Island Chief and I just want to put a disclaimer that I hope I don't offend too many people. Sometimes I say things that maybe I should think about a little bit more before picking up my phone. Gotcha. Well, I've been following uh, the the the, um, the Twitter account, and also I now have the app. So the next time I come back, I know that my experience is going to be enhanced that much more. So Eric, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. And for everybody out there who's watching and listening, just remember, we are all attraction pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.